A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this Malava Malka episode is comes tonight at the yard site of the Chavetz Chaim. The, um, the uh, what is it? The 87th yard site of the Chavetz Chaim? Something like that. The, um, I guess, um, 88th, I don't know. Either way, so the Chavetz Chaim, um, and this is going to be the part four of um, our episodes about the Chavetz Chaim. We're going to—it's going to be about the Sfarim that he wrote and the Raden Yeshiva which he headed, and uh, it happens to have we have already had uh, three other uh, Chavetz Chaim episodes over the years of this over the past year and a half of this uh, podcast. One about myths about the Chavetz Chaim. We uh, busted a few of those. We had another one about the family, uh, the children of the Chavetz Chaim, and we recently had one about the Sefer Torah that was written in the Chavetz Chaim's memory following his passing. And it is his yard site, and he's so beloved, and we could literally endlessly discuss him, and we'll hopefully have many future episodes that we'll have occasionally to discuss different aspects of the Chavetz Chaim and uh, so much to so much to say. Before we start, I want to mention that um, also just went up uh, on the headlines uh, show a podcast, um, which is usually hosted uh, by uh, by um, David Lichtenstein. So I um, well, this was a I had the privilege of participating in this past uh, was just posted now the headlines uh, podcast uh, show about. Seminaries, a very interesting and exciting topic, and it was guest hosted by a fabulous host, uh, Reb Aaron Parnas, who also himself has a podcast, a Chinuch podcast called Chinuch 2.0. You might want to check out his podcast as well. But either way, I want to welcome probably a couple of thousand new listeners to our uh, Jewish History Soundbites podcast who came over from uh, from headlines now that they heard me there, so they're going to for sure be flocking over to join us here. So welcome, it's great to have you. It was a great topic, it was about seminaries, and we discussed the history of uh, Beis Yaakov and how it developed, and how teacher seminaries developed, and a whole 
that whole thing. And I happened to listen before to just to see how it came out. So I listened to the host and to um, the other guests on the show. And it was all very interesting. So you might want to check that out as well. So I want to thank uh, Headlines for having me and especially the host, uh, Aaron Parnas, who, who was fantastic. And we'll move over to the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim impacted the Jewish people in many ways, primarily in three ways. It was his leadership initiatives in, in the, the yeshiva world, in education, in major decisions in, in the rabbinic world of the Russian Empire, of, uh, in Agudas Yisrael, and in many other ways. He was a, a tremendous leader, um, and there's many, many things to talk about in his leadership. The second way was through his yeshiva. Um, the Radin Yeshiva, which he founded and headed for many, many years, and through his, perhaps his most everlasting legacy, is through his Sfarim. He wrote many, and some of them were extremely influential and continue to be and even grow in influence till today. So today we'll focus on the latter two. We'll focus on his Radin Yeshiva and also on some of the Sfarim and the books that he authored and wrote and, and how they influenced Um Ravitz Chaim is someone who we visit when we used to have tours to Europe and hopefully we'll have once again someday. So we go to the cemetery where the Chavetz Chaim is buried. It's usually a very high point of any tour of Belarus. And the other Rashi Yeshiva of the Radin Yeshiva, who we're going to speak about, are also buried right there next to him. So, so it's uh, you know very real. We visit the Yeshiva building, which I'll discuss uh, as well. So he founds the, the Yeshiva in... Uh, in 1869. So it's relatively early on, and as far as the Lithuanian yeshiva world goes, he founds it in his hometown of Raden, uh, where he lives. He first was in some other place for a short period of time, but he comes back to Raden, and he founds this, it's really a small chabura. They even call them prushim in the beginning, because they literally slept on benches in the base medrash and ate teg uh, by local homes. It wasn't really that organized. It was very small, very not organized. It was a very localized venture, in the beginning, and that's how it remained throughout the early years. And it only started to develop in 1886 when the Chavetz Chaim's son-in-law, Hirsch Levinson, who if you go back to our episode on last year's yard site about the Chavetz Chaim's family, a bulk of a nice chunk of the episode was discussing his incredible son-in-law, Hirsch. So I'm not going to elaborate on him for too long now. Um, but he joins, he builds up the yeshiva in, in 1886, and he makes it into a real yeshiva. Um, and then in 1912, the yeshiva had grown. This is right on the eve of World War One, just a couple of years before the war breaks out. He builds this uh, big, beautiful brick building, a very impressive edifice, which still stands till today. We visit the yeshiva on trips. We go into the building, very impressive, large building. And it actually, and during the communist time, and up until recently, up until a few years ago, when we would give a visit on the early trips, um, it would it was some sort of, Community center, you know, belong, you know, the 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 Raden uh, locals uh, used it, and recently it returned to Jewish hands. So now it's once again in Jewish hands, and I don't know what they plan on doing with it, but at least it's in Jewish hands. But either way, so the building eventually housed over three hundred students at the time, and 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 it maintained a very large presence in the interwar period. It went into exile during World War One. It was in in uh, in uh, Shmilovitz and Shumiats and Snovsk and other places, which I discussed in other episodes, um, but it came back to Radin after World War One, 
and uh, returned to its home. A portion of the yeshiva actually stayed there throughout the entire uh, war. But uh, what was the Chavaz Chaim's role in the, inside the Radim Yeshiva? Um, he never was the Rosh Yeshiva. He never gave Shiurim. He never considered himself the Rosh Yeshiva. He never held a, an official real position. But it was his Yeshiva. He started it. He would appoint the Rosh Yeshiva and staff. In other words, it was his say about who would become it. So that, you know, he definitely had a major uh, influence there. He also was very much involved in the fundraising. He didn't do too much traveling for fundraising, but he interacted with uh, donors. He would write letters. He he did go on campaigns and tried to get money for the yeshiva. He was very actively involved in the fundraising uh, for the yeshiva, literally till uh, almost his passing. Um, and a lot of his correspondence that we have till today, because he would send them to donors in America and England and other places, is letters that he would write to donors, thanking them. Um, very often he would write it in Yiddish, you know, assuming that uh, you know, sometimes the uh, the addressees were simple Jews who might not be able to read rabbinic Hebrew, and sometimes even women. You know, he would he would be writing to donors who who were who were uh, who were women in America or other places. Um, and then the role, the other role that he played in the yeshiva was he would give shmuzin, he would give talks uh, in his house. He would not give it in the yeshiva. He gave it in his house, and it was you know guys would pack in. And it wasn't open for everyone in the yeshiva, but people who wanted to come and have a relationship with the Chavetz Chaim. And here we had to say, and very often it was and this epitomized who the Chavetz Chaim was and his whole style of reaching out to people, including his students in the yeshiva, was a certain simplicity. And the message that he had in these shmuzin was not a deep uh, uh, shmuz like you would have from some of the famous mashgichim of the day. It was. It was very simple. Very often he would speak about Amuna, and very often he would speak about very simple things, keeping mitzvahs, and this it was the entire personality and persona and message of the Chavetz Chaim in many ways about Amuna and about other things that he would always speak about to other people, and it comes to go across in, in, in a lot of stories about the Chavetz Chaim was his simplicity. In fact, sometimes uh, students walked away disappointed. You read some of the memoirs from from the time, and they say, hey, I wasn't impressed at all with the Chavetz Chaim Shmuzin. It wasn't deep, it wasn't uh, life-changing, and they speak so much about his how holy he is and how incredible he is, and here his Shmuzin were not very deep. But that was that was that why it was so incredible. It was so simple. That's why it was so special. Um, the Chavetz Chaim was almost like a Rebbe. He was treated almost like a Hasidic Rebbe. And he was the closest thing that the Litvaks ever had to a Hasidic Rebbe. And the stories that even big Litvaks say about him uh, about him, miracles that he performed and and prayers of his that were answered and and uh, and people would go to him f- to receive a bracha which was uncommon uh, for to, for in that part in that culture in Lithuanian uh, mindset and culture but by the Chavetz Chaim it was, accept- it was accepted so the Chavetz Chaim's spirit hovers over the yeshiva even though he does not actually have an official regular uh, position as a Rosh Hashiva or as someone who gives a regular uh, uh, shear. Uh, you know, in the early years, he would actually go collect food for the students of the shear from the local townspeople. Talking about someone who had no airs about him whatsoever. There was even times, you know, we're talking about in, in Russia at the time, Poland, Russia, where the weather could get pretty you know, inclement uh, conditions during the winter. And he would very often, during his younger years, he would shovel the pathway to the base medrash, to the yeshiva building, when it was snow, when it had snowed the night before, he'd get up early in the morning, morning and shovel the snow so that the yeshiva students would be able to walk on a path. Um, 
he was on a on a different level, and the stories about him are endless. Um, he he was through his yeshiva, he, and and also through other ways of his his leadership. He was uh, he was in a certain way involved in in outreach and in kirov before before that the term was even coined. And through his yeshiva talmidim, he would very often send alumni of his yeshiva to become rabbis and community rabbis in small outlying towns to help build up Yiddishkeit. You know, that uh, traditional Judaism wasn't very popular at this point, and most, uh, you know, most uh, traditional Jewish life was systematically being wiped out everywhere, and he would encourage his students to take up positions to try to strengthen um, Yiddishkeit in, in, in some of these places, um, to be literally an outreach. Uh, one of his uh, Talmidim was, in the, also in his Kachim Kail, which I'll get to, was a fellow by the name of Reb Nachman Kup. And there was, it was a research project that I was actually recently involved in. I do also uh, research projects for families and for institutions, and you could also be in touch with me about that if you're interested or if there's a need to do some, uh, some uh, research like that. And, and the, you know, the family wanted to produce this documentary about this rabbi. And, and we uncovered the fact, the fact that he had been a student of the Chavetz Chaim, and he becomes a rabbi in his little shtetl, Hainovka, where he builds up a shul, he builds the mikveh, and he really does, makes an effort during that period of time to improve Jewish life. Um, eventually he's killed by the Nazis, but uh, one t- at one point uh, this, this rabbi's sister-in-law came to the Chavetz Chaim for a bracha. And the Chavetz Chaim said, you don't need a bracha. You, the fact that your brother-in-law is Reb Nachman Kup, that's enough of a bracha. Because look what he's doing for the Jewish people. And that's what the Chavetz Chaim's relationship with, was with his Talmudim, and that's the missions that he would send them on. The Chavetz Chaim was very involved in, in Russian Jewry, which I mentioned in a recent podcast about the Evsektia, and I think other times the plight of the Russian Jews moved him greatly. He regretted leaving after World War I. He was in Russia during World War I. He regretted leaving. He regretted coming back to Radin. Uh, we talked about that at other times. And also it's going to be discussed in an upcoming column and for the record column in the Mishpacha magazine. We're going to keep your eyes peeled for it very soon. I'm going to discuss, uh, me and my colleague Davi Safir are going to be discussing uh, the Chavetz Chaim's activities on behalf of Russian Jewry. So the Chavetz Chaim was also an outreach Kirov pioneer among many, many other things that he did. So the uh, he hires the Rebbeim and the Yeshiva and they make a huge impact. They're the ones who are the uh, the life of the Radin Yeshiva. The, the, we'll mention just a few. There are many, many Rebbeim and staff over the years, and I'm just going to mention a few of them. Rabbi Shalandinsky was the famous Rosh Yeshiva of, uh, of Chavetz Chaim, of the, of the Yeshiva Chavetz Chaim. He came in 1900, and he was the last of that generation also to pass on. He only passed away in 1938, shortly before the war. He was an old-school Valazhener Talmud. He was one of the Chavetz Chaim's right-hand men, uh, one of his people, one of his... Uh, one of his uh, uh, sergeants, who uh, he went on many missions and meetings on behalf of the Chavetz Chaim, or accompanied him places. He was a very modest individual, a tremendous Talmud Chacham, very serious and in a certain way old-fashioned, um, a certain uh, you know old-school experience with him. And he he gave actually the main hesped at the Chavetz Chaim's funeral uh, was Rameshul Andinsky, who was the last of the, that generation. And uh, very well respected, but in a very quiet way, in a very modest way, um, which maybe I'll get back to. Uh, the more famous Rosh Yeshiva of the Radin Yeshiva came a few years later, uh, Rav Naftali Trupp, who arrives in 1904. Naftali had already made a name for himself, and he was 
in, in, in Slabotka and in other places, Kelm, and he, uh, he was, you know, famous as a young Lamden, very attractive. The Chavetz Chaim sniffed the air. He was, a, you know, a master educator and he always was looking for to build up, uh, in the spirit of the time to try to make uh, to try to build Tyra and Yiddishkeit in the spirit of the time. To, to me, you know, he was fight, he was battling his whole life against the challenges of modernity, and he saw that the new style of learning, which Rabbi Shlandinsky was very old style, old style Valajan, and here Rabbi Naftali uh, w- was the new style Valajan, even though he himself did not study in Valajan, but very similar to the new style of learning popularized by Rabbi Chaim Brisker, the new analytical what we would call today the Lamdish style of learning. And Renaftali Trupp was a big Lamdan, and his shiurim were popular, and he would attract the top-of-the-line students for the, for the first time in the yeshiva's history. Until then, it was, uh, you know, it was a, you know, we would call a second-rate yeshiva. It was not a top yeshiva at all. But Renaftali, oh, he's a reputation. He, he's attracting the big Lamdan. He's attracting the top uh, boys, and his Derech Halimud, and that's why the Chavetz Chaim brings him in, because he has in mind what's the best thing for the Talmidim. And in fact, the Raftali Trapp also brings Musr into the yeshiva. The Radin yeshiva was not a Musr yeshiva also. The Chavetz Chaim's relationship with the Musr movement is a topic for another time, but he was not part of the Musr movement, despite the fact that Dov Katz has a chapter of him in his Tnuas HaMusr book. But the Chavetz Chaim was was above all of it. He he personified Musser himself. He, he you know he didn't have to attach himself to any movement. But there was no official Musser studying in the yeshiva. There was no if it was not officially part of the Musser movement. There was no mashgiach uh, giving shmuzin. And the Naftali Trump bring he's from Kelm. He brings Musser into the yeshiva, and uh, that that caused a bit of a controversy in the beginning. But he was successful at doing so. In fact, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, who was Naftali Trump's best friend from Kelm. He was the Mashgiach in Radin for several years, which I also mentioned on another episode, an early episode. Short period of time, Rabbi Rucham was there. And, um, and Rav Tully, uh, actually uh, gave a, uh, a shear. Uh, when he gave the shear, so sometimes the Chavetz Chaim himself, who was so much older than Rav Tully, he would come and listen to the shear. In fact, one time Rav Tully gave a shear, and it was a very deep Lamdish shear. And, uh, and, um, and and the Raftali gave one approach to understanding the the Gemara, and then when he was finished that, he said, We can say a deeper approach. And he went on and said a whole new analytical understanding of the topic. And when he was finished the second time, he said, We can say an even deeper approach. And allegedly, this is the story, the Chavetz Chaim yells out from the back, Yerub Naftali, or Rosh Hashiva, something like that. It's a state in Pasuk, It says in the Pasuk that the ways of the Torah are pleasant. In other words, don't burden the students of the Yeshiva with such a, another deep uh, interpretation. They, you might lose them. Uh, so that was, that was the, also the Chavetz Chaim with Ibn Aftali. Um, Naftali unfortunately passed away very young. He was in the Yeshiva for a quarter of the century. He was there from 1904 to 1929, 28, 29. And, but he passes on, I think in 1928 actually. And um, and uh, you know he passed away pretty quite young, and that was the end of the golden age of the Rad and Yeshiva. Once Rav Naftali was gone, so that, you know it wasn't such an attractive uh, place to come, but it still was large. It just 
wasn't the uh, wasn't attracting the top uh, top uh, students anymore. So Rabbi Hirsch Levinson, we mentioned, was interesting that there was a a uh, who passed away earlier. I mentioned in another in another episode, in 1920, when they were still in exile from World War One. But it's interesting when Raftali passed away. So there was a visitor in Europe at the time, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, who had been the Rosh Hashiva in Slabatka, and then he had founded the Yeshiva in Slutsk, and he was the Rav in Slutsk. And then when his son-in-law, Baron Cutler, escapes from Russia with the Yeshiva and found, re- re-establishes the Yeshiva in Kletsk, across the border in independent Poland, Sir Zalman stayed on a few more years in, in uh, Slutsk, and then he moves to, he retires, as it were, to Eretz Yisrael, and he doesn't retire there, he becomes part of the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva and takes a very active leadership position in the Jewish community, but either way, Rabbi Zalman came back to Europe for a visit to the uh, to the groundbreaking ceremony of the Kletz Yeshiva in 1928 or 29, whenever this was, and um, and he's there for a period of time in Europe. And it was actually I just saw this recently in a source I never knew it before that he was offered to replace Rabbi Naftali Trump as the Rosh Yeshiva in Raden. Fascinating. Uh, what if that we can speculate what would have happened if Rabbi Zalman was the Rosh Yeshiva in Raden, and, uh, and how that would have played out. And obviously it didn't work out, and he returned to Eretz Yisrael, but uh, Ernest Zalman himself had a very interesting uh, rabbinic and Rosh Hashiva career, which is also something to talk about perhaps uh, one day. Um, so lots of Rosh Yeshiva pass on within a span of several years. First from Naftali, a couple of years later, the Chavetz Chaim, um, that same year that the Chavetz Chaim passed on in 1933, Sir Naftali's son-in-law, who had taken over his position as giving a shir in the Yeshiva, a Baruch Feivelson, um, he passed away very young, just a couple of years later, and buried also next to the in, in that same row. Um, so the what happens is that the next generation takes over. Moshe Landinsky, of course, stays on for another few years. In 1938, he passes away, the last of that generation. But now it's already the children of the previous uh, generation. So he had Reb Baruch Feivelson, who's the son-in-law of Reb Naftali, but he passes away young also. And then you have um, Reb Avram Trapp, Reb Naftali's son, who also gets some sort of uh, a position in the yeshiva to give a shir, and he survives the war in Siberia, and eventually uh, moves to the United States after the war. And, and uh, ironically, Reb Henech Leibowitz, who was the yeshiva of the Chavetz Chaim yeshiva, he marries the daughter of Reb Ram Shrap. So you have another Radin uh, connection there. Um, and there, they you know they 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 have a claim to be the Rashi yeshiva because they're the children of Rav Talit Shrap. On the other hand, you have Rabbi Hirsch Levinson, who passed away in 1920. His children, who are children of Rabbi Hirsch Levinson, grandchildren of the Chavetz Chaim, they have a claim to be in charge of the yeshiva. You have Rabbi Yeshua Levinson, his son, who was a rebbe and kind of an administrator of the yeshiva. And a lot of the pictures of the, the video of the Chavetz Chaim, a lot of pictures of the Chavetz Chaim in his later years, he's the one who accompanies him places. And you have his son-in-law, Rabbi Hirsch Levinson's son-in-law, Rabbi Eliezer Zev Kaplan, who was... Uh, who was the mashgiach of the yeshiva. He's actually the brother of the famous Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Kaplan, who was the son-in-law of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz of the Mir Yeshiva. And, um, and these children of Rabbi Hirsch Levinson uh, were, were killed by the Nazis, they and their families, I believe. And, the, and, and they, they have a position in the yeshiva. But it goes further because the Chavetz Chaim also gives a position in the yeshiva to Remendel Zaks, his uh, youngest son-in-law, who first becomes in charge of the Kailul Kudshim, and uh, and later of the yeshiva itself. And this caused a big issue, which kind of exploded after the Chavetz Chaim was nifter. The Chavetz Chaim was such a, a man of peace, and, and uh, 
And, it, you know, it's kind of an irony and a bit of a pity that this machloikis, uh, this dispute in the yeshiva of succession really, you know, was kept sort of under the wraps in the last years of the Chavetz Chaim, although it was already simmering from the time that Rav Raftali had passed away, but it, it literally exploded after the Chavetz Chaim uh, passed on, and that uh, destroyed the reputation of the yeshiva. They still had a few hundred Talmidim in the yeshiva till the war broke out, but it never really, uh, you know, attained its former glory because of all the disputes going on about who should be in charge and who really owns it and who's in charge and this. And it wasn't a pretty sight at all. It was, uh, you know, really a, a whole a whole story of uh, of the succession and all these kids involved and, and, uh, and uh, you know, not really resolved until the war. They even brought in Reb Leib, Reb Leib Pupko, the oldest son of the Chavetz Chaim, who was older and respected. He lived in Warsaw. They brought him in uh, and kind of to, to give a presence and make peace. He, he was brought in from to be the rabbi of the town of Radna and also to be somewhat have a position in the yeshiva. It didn't work out. Um, he passed away shortly afterwards and is buried uh, uh, there also. Now, the Londinsky kids, uh, Moshe Londinsky's children, were not rabbeim in the yeshiva, uh, but Ramesh himself outlived all the other senior Russian yeshiva. He was there almost till the end. He wouldn't even come to the yeshiva in his later years. He all barely showed up there. Really, he, he, you know, he was saddened by the situation uh, there, and, and he was old and not well, and he, he couldn't resolve it. So he would you know, stay away for the most part. Um, there's also, but, but the children of his felt, the children of Ramesh Landinsky felt that they had a stake in the yeshiva as well. You know, they... Uh, they, there's also, I don't know if it's a legend or a true story about that uh, the Chavetz Chaim promised that he would receive the yeshiva as a reward for him allowing Reb Naftali Trup to come in. Because before the Chavetz Chaim hired Reb Naftali, he asked Reb Moshe Landinsky's uh, permission. He's bringing in a young popular Rosh yeshiva. He's kind of going to shove him uh, off to, to be a sideshow. So, uh, you know, how can he do that to the senior Rosh yeshiva? So he asked Reb Moshe Landinsky's permission. And Reb Moshe Landinsky said, sure, whatever's the benefit of the Talmud. And that was the Greatness, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the tzitkis, uh, you know, the you know, amazing, uh, characteristic of Ramesh Landinsky that he was okay with Reb Naftali coming in. And legend has it that Chavetz Chaim promised that the yeshiva would eventually be his because he would outlive them all, which is what happened. So then Ramesh Landinsky's kids have a, a stake in the, uh, inheritance as well. So after the war, though a bunch of his children were killed, but some of them survived, and Ramarchai Landinsky and Ramnachman David Landinsky, Together with Mendel Zaks, the Chavetz Chaim's son-in-law, they started the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva in New York, and in Muncie there's still some sort of elementary school that's affiliated with the Zaks till today, I believe. And it brings us to the topic of actually yeshivas named for the Chavetz Chaim. Incredibly, the Radin Yeshiva was called the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva while the Chavetz Chaim was still alive. It's one of the only times in history that the Yeshiva is named for the one who's in charge of the yeshiva while he's still alive. And amazing of the, how the Chavetz Chaim really became a legend in his own lifetime, uh, and which he did in many ways. And this is just one manifestation of it, that the yeshiva on the letterhead and everything, he's called, it's called the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva while he's still alive, and that's how it's named uh, after his passing as well. So his own yeshiva is named after him. But following his passing, there's all kinds of other places that are named for him as well, his Great nephew of David Leibowitz, uh, you know, famously named his yeshiva for him in in uh, in New York, and then we mentioned the Zach's Londinsky yeshiva is named for him. But Rabbi Mordechai Londinsky also opened the yeshiva in Netanya, called Yeshiva Sraden, and the Londinsky family felt that that they owned the Raden yeshiva name, 
And this Radin Yeshiva in Netanya still exists. I've been there. I've seen it. And of course, there's the Kibbutz uh, Chavetz Chaim of Poale Agudas Yisrael, which is also a great story, but not for now. But it's not a Yeshiva also. There was also a Yeshiva in Kfar Saba in Israel for about 10 years called the Chavetz Chaim Yeshiva. It was named after the Chavetz Chaim. The Rosh Yeshiva was a young Reb Aaron Leib Steinman, believe it or not. Um, so that's also a story. And of course, TA in Baltimore is also named for the Chavetz Chaim. There's probably more. Anyways, so that's a little bit uh, um, about the Yeshiva. The Chavetz Chaim had a vision also to study Kachim, to prepare for Mashiach coming. Uh, so he has the, the Kachim Kail was opened by him next to the Yeshiva, and Ravendel Zaks was uh, the Reish Kail there, but, and eventually uh, he was in charge of the Yeshiva as well. Um, the Pan of Izharov, Rabbi Yisrael Shalami Kahanam, and Rabbi Yudushnitzer of Petach Tikva, and Rabbi Chana Vassarman, and many others studied at this uh, Kachim Kail, which uh, was, uh, was, uh, became a, a quite a prestigious institution. However, no less of an influence, and probably a much more bigger and more lasting and even growing influence, is uh, the, the writings of the Chavetz Chaim. You have the famous ones like the Mishnah Brura and the Chavetz Chaim, which is, you know, where he got his name. His name was actually Rabbi Yisrael Meir Pupko, Hakoyen or Cohen, or in Russian, there is no letter H, so Kagan. Um, but, uh, but, uh, so he, uh, but, but he's called the Chavetz Chaim after one of his first uh, Sfarim, which became immensely popular. And the impact uh, that he had um, uh, through these farm is literally immeasurable and you know lasts till today. So the context it, 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 you have to understand is that the Chavetz Chaim is the impetus for his writing is to have an influence, and which which I would I would elaborate on. Um, the Chavetz Chaim does not write uh, is almost unique in Jewish history. There are other you know authors of Svarim like that, but very rare. Um, the Chavetz Chaim didn't write something that he had been studying, and he had quite a few shtiklach uh, Torah to write on and and publish, uh, and that he wanted to share with the world. That's not why he wrote Sfarim. He would look around and see the need. He would see what the Jewish people needs. He would see challenges facing the Jewish people. He would see something that needs that needs to be written about, that people need, that it's important, that it's imperative that they have. And then he would go ahead and write a book about it. In other words, it was all about his leadership. It was all about a, in real time. It's, it's definitely a historical window to see what's going on at the time because it's all written reacting to a real world out there. There's nothing written that's theory or in the ivory tower or in the base measures. It's all interacting with the, with his surrounding Jewish society and, and filling a, a specific need with each and every safer. And he wrote loads and loads of Svarim, the influence just of the Mishnah Brura on the wider world, an influence on the Hasidic world. This is something that eventually became accepted um, in the well beyond his own. And the Chavetz Chaim is one of those rare people who belongs to the entire Jewish people and not and not a specific uh, part of society. Um, and, 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 and that's very much expressed in the Hasidic world and how much his Mishnah Brura is accepted and was accepted then. And you know, in his Sefer Chavetz Chaim with. So one of the Gerarebbes, I believe, uh, used to have it always on his desk. Um, I think the Gerarebbe had it on his desk, uh, the, the Sefer Chavetz Chaim, and, and the Mishnah Brewer as well. Now it's interesting when you compare the Mishnah Brewer to another halachic work written at the time, Rabbi Chiel Michal Epstein, the Yorach HaShulchan. Um, his, the, the, there's an incredibly, one of, one of the best books that came out in the last couple of years, a, a biography of uh, of the Archa Shulchan, written by 
Reb Eitam Henkin, who was killed by terrorists in a tragic way, but uh, this was the last book he wrote, and it was published after his passing. It's a fantastic book. If you, if you could read Hebrew, it's not such a difficulty. Hebrew, Taroich Lefonai Shulchan. And there he has a whole chapter uh, making an analysis of, of the Mishnah Brewer versus the Arach HaShulchan when they were published. And it goes through all the times that the Arach HaShulchan quotes the Mishnah Brewer, um, and based on, you know, based on when the publishing times of the two books were, because they were published somewhat simultaneously. Uh, the Arach HaShulchan quotes the Mishnah Brewer several times, but the, but never vice versa. The Chavetz Chaim never quotes the Arach HaShulchan. Um, there's the whole issue with the order of the printing, which he goes through. And, uh, and then he go, quotes his great-grandfather, Rev Henkin, Rev Yezevelio Henkin, and others who say that the Aruch HaShulchan is preferable to Paskin, uh, you know, halachic questions based on the Aruch HaShulchan and not the Mishnah Brura. And it's, which is so interesting because we know that most become quite accepted to prefer the Mishnah Brura. It's become a classic. So you have an amazing phenomenon that the Mishnah Brewer has, you know, the, the way it's written, and he explains why. You know, he goes through several reasons why. The clarity of the Mishnah Brewer, the sources that he brings, and uh, literally it's a sefer that uh, completely took off. There's a famous Chazoin Ish who says uh, that, you know, everything we have, we go with the Mishnah Brewer. So the, uh, the, it's, it's almost the, like the last word in the halacha, and, and uh, you know, there's a lot to say about that. But he wrote a lot of other svarim. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the uh, lesser well-known svarim that were really written for his time. Um, he wrote to fill a need. It was not, to, like I said, it was not to popularize something that he'd been studying. He was completely unique in that regard. He took full responsibility for the Jewish people on his shoulders. And that is expressed in many ways throughout his, uh, his life. And any need he saw that needed strengthening, so he would write a book about it or a pamphlet. And he had incredible, it's incredible insight into his farm to, to understand this, because you have to understand the backdrop, you have to understand the historical context that's going on. And it says a lot about who the Chavetz Chaim was and his style of leadership. And it also means that his svarim are more reflective of a specific historical context than almost any other safer written, which also gives us an insight into their historic value uh, as, as, you know, as a window. Um, which I mentioned, uh, and will, and I'm discussing in, in my series on, uh, current series on the history of girls' education, where a footnote in the Chavetz Chaim's Likuti Alachis says a lot about the historical, uh, period that he was living in, because he was responding to a certain reality of, of, uh, the dearth of girls' education at the time. Well, one of the books that he writes is a sefer called Machane Yisrael, the camp of the Jewish people of Yisrael. Which, uh, which is written for Jewish soldiers. It's probably the first Sefer in history written for Jewish soldiers in non-Jewish armies. It's part of his greater uh, actions on behalf of Jewish soldiers in the Tsar's army. Now, again, this is a reaching out to people who are on the fringe of society. These were Jews who were taken into the Russian army. They were very not religious anymore. They were abandoned by their communities or had abandoned their communities or both. And they were not really part of you know, they weren't the, the next, uh, the next great rabbis. They weren't the elite of the Jewish people, to say the least. And the Chavetz Chaim is there for them. And he, and it's a safer of both trying to strengthen their emuna and also giving them all kinds of, uh, every type of halachic leniency possible and fathomable so that they can keep a bare minimum of Yiddishkeit, of Jewish life, even in a place as challenging as the Russian army itself. 
and uh, amazingly um, useful and practical guidebook to surviving as a Jewish soldier with a Jewish identity in the Tsarist Russian army, which is later used by Jews in the American army during World War II and, and other armies. And it's, it's, um, and it's, uh, something that, you know, you know, he had, he had, he did a lot of things for Jews in the Russian army, you know, getting kosher food to them and all kinds of things like that. You know, he, um, he, uh, he once met a, a, it was, it was in an inn and there was a boorish, very coarse looking fellow who was speaking in a very, uh, not nice way and, and he asked the innkeeper who he was, and he said, oh, he's an assimilated Jew. He was taken as a Cantonist back in the Cantonist decrees in the times of Tsar Nikolai, and he had completely left Jewish life, and uh, he was totally assimilated, and uh, and and that, that's why he looks like the way he does. He looks like a Russian peasant. So Chavetz Chaim goes over to him, you know, distinguished-looking Jew, and he sits down at his table, and he's, Chavetz Chaim says to him, I'm jealous of you. He says, you're jealous of me? Why? You know, everyone looks at him as just a simple drunk. And here this, this, you know, important looking person is telling him he's jealous of him. So he says, because I heard that you were taken as a child, you were kidnapped and taken as a Cantonist to the Russian Tsarist army. And they tried to get to convert to the Russian Orthodox Church and you refused to convert and you remained with your Jewish identity. And that's a special merit. You're an incredible person. I don't know how you withstood the pressure. I'm jealous of you. And this guy felt like a million bucks and he strengthened his Jewish identity. He comes back in a certain way to the Jewish people as a result. Um, I want to mention another two small books the Chavetz Chaim wrote. He wrote a sefer called Nefutza Yisro. And it's a sefer that's railing. It's almost a polemic against immigrating to the United States and, and, and countries like that, which was, he lived during that time. He lived through the time of the great immigration. And he was one of the many rabbis who decried the lack of Jewish observance that the immigrants started to practice in their new countries. There's no Jewish education and kashras is a disaster and you have to work on Shabbos. And they started hearing all these horror stories. So the Rav Chaim goes ahead and, uh, you know, so you can't, how can you move to the United States? How can you move to these places? There's no Jewish life. You're going to reject everything Jewish. So he writes a whole thing that you're not allowed to immigrate. You can't immigrate. You can't go to these countries. You can't leave. And then what does he go ahead and do? He goes ahead and writes another book called Nidche Yisrael. And what's Nidche Yisrael? He's writing a sefer for the Jewish immigrant. And he's writing this sefer, the, the spread out, you know, Nidche, they're, they're spread out over the world in the four corners of the globe. And he says, you may be in community, far-flung communities where there's no rabbis. So I'm here for you. And he writes the book in Yiddish, the original printing, because many of them were simple Jews who could not understand the rabbinic Hebrew. And he writes again the basic halachas and with leniencies and how to maintain a minimal kashras and Shabbos and Jewish life. And he writes a lot about strengthening their amuna and strengthening their Jewish identity and a lot of inspirational musr there. And it's all to keep them connected. And it's written by the same person. And that's what I want to bring out here. You know, he's talking to the people who literally ignored his advice. After he wrote this book, don't go. But if you do go, I'm here for you. I didn't forget about you. I didn't reject you just because you did the wrong thing, in my opinion, by moving there. I'm there for you in that instance as well. And there I have a, another safer for you, which, uh, which, uh, was used. And it's a guidebook. And he wrote one of the first, one, yeah, the word, well, I wouldn't say one of the first people, but he wrote two sfarim for women. 
one about covering their hair and Taras Mishpacha. You know, there were people who wrote Svarim for women before, but again, he, he writes so to engage them, to connect them, to strengthen their Yiddishkeit. He would actually go out and sell his own Svarim. That's how he made a living after he closed the store. Um, he would go out and, and later on, later years he sent them places and he would, you know, people would arrange the payment other ways. But, uh, he was, he was, he went out and, and, and he sold his own Svarim. He was his own marketer. He wrote in his last years, he wrote a short sefer called the Sefer Mitzvah Hakotzer, which is a compendium of uh, the relevant mitzvahs that are relevant in today's day and age. Again, so you should know at least the basic mitzvahs you're doing. He wrote the Likuti Halachis, the, on, uh, the, taking the halachic uh, um, issues that were not covered by the Rif or earlier halachic authorities on the Masechtas, certain Masechtas of Shas. He wrote famously the Ahavas Chesed, a whole sefer about doing chesed and related issues to chesed. He wrote a short uh, um, um, pamphlet about the shaving, and shaving with a razor. Be careful about shaving and even not shaving with a razor. And he wrote a sefer about keeping Shabbos. He wrote a sefer about strengthening Torah study. Literally about every topic that he felt needed strengthening, um, he would have a sefer for. So hopefully we'll elaborate more on the Chavetz Chaim in a future episode, but that's enough for now. This is Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at yehuda.yehudageberer.com. Your questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, lectures, and sponsorships. And you can uh, follow us. Uh, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. And uh, follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.